You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Today we conclude our series on tattoos on the heart by talking about gladness. Uh, If this is your first day uh, here at Asbury or if you're tuning in online for the first time and you haven't been with us over these past three weeks, that is okay. I encourage you however, to get Father Greg Boyle's book called Tattoos on the Heart. In fact, this series only covers about half of that book. There's so much more in that memoir of Father G's work with Homeboy Industries. And in fact, he has a follow-up book called Barking at the Choir uh, that one day we may tackle. Our scripture lesson today comes from the book of Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 65, beginning with the 17th verse. It'll be on the screens, it'll be online, and it's also in your Bible. Let us hear the word of the Lord. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy, and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a 100 years will be considered a youth and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for a calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In this section of Father G's book on gladness, he tells this quick Great story. He said, some time back at the turn of the century during a general election, some pundit tried to compare and contrast Bill Clinton, Al Gore, and George W. Bush. He said, Bill Clinton walks into a room and wants everyone to like him. Al Gore walks into a room and he wants everyone to think that he's right. W walks into a room and wants the room to know that he's in charge. We all feel all of these at one time or another, 
because they are fear-based responses. And it's hard to get out from under that dread. Let's assume that you walk into a room that's full of strangers, people you have never met, people you don't know. And if this is your first time at Asbury, this is quite apropos for this morning. What is it that you hope happens when you enter that room? Some may enter that room and just want to be a fly on the wall, just passing through, which means probably the worst thing that can happen would be something out of like a 1980s teen movie where there's a DJ and then the record scratches and then everyone turns and looks at you. Terrifying. Conversely, you may want the room to notice you. Which means the worst thing that can happen is you go up and you start to introduce yourself to, the, to those who are in the room, this, these strangers who you hope will be friends, and you're utterly dismissed. And you're viewed as not being important at all. So the person who doesn't want to be noticed is going to emphasize their own invisibility, wearing something unassuming, walking quickly through the room, but not quickly enough to draw attention, maybe along the perimeter of the wall. The person that wants to be noticed will also emphasize maybe their own importance, maybe telling just a little white lie about what they do to make themselves sound important, maybe talk just a little bit louder than they normally do. We all have something to fear. We all fear something. And I'm not talking about the, the, the fear of height or the fear of spiders you know, or the fear of being tossed out of your canoe into water that is deeper than where your feet can stand and you just know that there's a sea beast under you ready to eat you alive. All of those are valid. I'm talking about the fear of being inconsequential. The fear of being incapable. The fear of not meeting expectations or not finding your identity. The fear of being alone. Or the fear of being deprived. Or the fear of being controlled or maybe out of control, or ultimately the fear of not being loved or found to be unlovable. Tattoos on the heart is not about the importance of finding a job or removing a tattoo or the necessity of finding five different revenue streams for a nonprofit success. Rather, it is about overturning the fear of being unlovable. When we think that no one loves us, including the assumption that maybe God even finds us unlovable, it causes us to be reckless, dangerous to ourselves, dangerous to others. It causes us to become overly protected of things and stuff and deaf to anyone else's concerns or needs. Our frightened selves want only for that gathered room of strangers to like us or to agree with us 
or to be intimidated by us. Father G. writes, I suppose Jesus walks into a room like that and loves what he finds there. He delights in it, in fact. Maybe he makes a beeline to the outcasts and chooses in them to go where love has not yet arrived. It seems his ways are not our ways, but they sure could be. He writes, we have grown accustomed to think that loving as God does is hard. We think it's about moral strain and obligation. We presume it requires a spiritual muscularity of which we are not capable. A layering of burden on top of sacrifice with a side order of guilt. Footnote, if you don't remember anything else from this entire series, remember this next sentence that Father G writes. But it was love, after all, that made the cross salvific, not the sheer torture of it. Jesus stood with the outcasts until they were welcomed or until he was crucified, whichever came first. Jesus stood with the outcasts until they were welcomed or until he was crucified, whichever came first. Let's talk about the cross for a moment. The cross isn't that God is angry and someone's got to pay for it. So God creates Jesus, the only one who could take the debt just in order to kill him. However, what we see in the cross is God entering into our story in the flesh of Jesus Christ, entering into that room of strangers who doesn't know him and loves us so much that not even death is a deterrent. God delights when we reveal that kind of love for one another. Therefore, Christians are to be the most selfless, loving, generous, and tenacious people on the planet. Not distracted by the wideness of the singularities that happen in the world. All of the distractions. Just this week, every day there was something else that seemed to demand our entire, total, devoted attention. That is the wide road that scripture talks about. Rather, we should focus on the narrow, singular vastness of God and the unreachable depths of God's love and grace. Or as Father Greg says, we breathe in the spirit that delights in our being, not the spirit that just puts up with our mess. A spirit that delights in us so that we might delight in one another. I'll end this series with, with a story. And there are many. If you've not picked up this book and read it, you're missing out. And I encourage you to get part two, Barking at the Choir, for a later read. But I'll leave you with this. He writes, 
I remember once seeing all the homies gathered together plotting vengeance immediately after the shooting of one of their homies named Victor. They were all posted up in front of his house in the projects, his mother sitting on the front steps worried about Victor's condition at the hospital. Then I arrive. I lean over and whisper to his mother that Victor is dead. And this time the homies are there to hear it. Instant wailing, syncopated yelps, and screams that curdle your insides, all coming from the mouth of a mother. The homies didn't do anything that night. They went home instead. The price of it all delivered to them courtesy of a grieving mother's vocal cords. After spending the entire afternoon with the family, I wanted to get back to the office before closing time. I knew that the homies needed to see me and I them. With 10 minutes left on the day's clock, my workers filed into my tiny office one by one to hug, to cry, and to take my emotional temperature. Each one attentive, tender, and consumed by a self-forgetfulness that only saints, really, are able to pull off. Then I'm there alone with the ache that doesn't leave you in the echoey silence of the vacated headquarters. Even the ghosts of the place seem to have stepped out. When Freddie, one of my workers, appears at my door. I know your heart is breaking, he says. I wish I had a magic wand to pass over your pain. As an adult, I don't recall crying with another person more fully than in that moment. We both just lose ourselves in our sobbing. Usually, I put myself, as the homies say, on check. But even I couldn't pull it off at this moment. I've been holding this enormous outsized grief in check for so long and had sudden permission to release it in the gentle urging and vast heart of Freddie. You know, all of us here are drowning. Freddie begins with difficulty, the tears, a tide that he's swimming against. And you, G, you just reach in and you swoop us all up. We resume our wailing, holding our heads, rocking some, unable to speak. Then Freddie, with his teeth clenched and something nearly resembling his frequent bursts of anger, he points his finger at me with a holy, determina <clears throat> holy determination. He says, I swear to you, if someone offered me a choice right now of a million dollars or a chance to swoop you up, Freddie stops swallows hard against the overflow of crying, he says, I would swoop you up. Through my tears, I am barely able to eke out. Freddie, you just did. You just did.
the cross is God swooping us up. And God delights when we swoop up one another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, swoop us up. May the fear that we hold crumble under the weight of the cross so that we have the courage and the strength to swoop up one another. May this forever be tattooed on our heart. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And now let us respond to this word.